Hello and welcome to this episode of the ESG Fitness Podcast, which is a Q&A episode that I am recording alone because I've been so unbelievably flaky because I have horrendous vertigo. Do you know what? It's probably not horrendous vertigo. It's probably quite mild vertigo, <laughs> but it's very annoying and I don't really know when it's going to come on and I feel okay now. So I just thought, bam, I'll click record because we have incredible questions from the Commit 6 group, which I will get onto. But what's been quite interesting about this vertigo experience, which I would highly not recommend to anyone, and I haven't figured out what is actually wrong with me yet, so obviously I shall report back. But the only thing that's making me not feel sick is like constantly, and I mean, I'm not actually sure what's cracking as well. Oh, it was that bottle. Um, Constantly consuming fruit like the whole time (laughs) so today I've already had two apples a pear some grapes quite a lot of tomatoes tomatoes count as a fruit don't they it's got seeds in so yeah you know what I'm gonna be smashing my vibe a day but um not ideal anyway I'm gonna now get on also I want to tell you about um last night where I went to a pottery making workshop, which I have to say (laughs) didn't massively help the vertigo because something spinning around in front of you, (laughs) shockingly, like wasn't actually that fun. Anyway, I made an amazing cup if I do say so myself, but I did think what was quite interesting about this is I guess like now that I'm very much aware of cognitive biases because I love reading about them and I find them so interesting, right? So these are these kind of weird human nature things that everybody does that don't really make that much sense. And I noticed a few of these as I was making this cup, right? So it's 50 pounds to do the pottery class. And then if you want the cup that you've now, or like whatever you've made, might be a bowl, a cup, whatever, If you want that in a usable form, then you have to pay more to put it in the kiln to then get it like heated up or whatever. And then you have to come and collect it, right? So it's not just the paying for the heating up, but like also you have to go back to the place um, and go and collect it and arrange your time to collect it and also email them and all this stuff, right? So it's quite a lot of like faff involved in getting it. Now, most people's piece of pottery was pretty like, awful right you would never pay so to get it kiln dried and stuff I can't remember if it was 10 or 20 pounds but even if it's 10 pounds right you would never actually pay that for the bowl that you've made or for the cup that I've made but everybody did everybody nobody was like oh no actually I don't want it the the funniest part about this I thought was like they were like oh yeah you can just take it home as it is and I was like oh okay what so like is this is this a usable cup then and they're like oh no it's just a lump of clay <laughs> like who would take that home surely it would just go I don't know like surely it would go moldy or something anyway so everybody gets it kiln dried now you can see that there's a lot of like abandoned pottery there so I'm like I, I'm willing to bet significantly more than 50% of people don't go back and get their pottery. But it did make me think of what cognitive biases are at play here. And I thought, one, the IKEA effect. So this is 
the observation that when you've made something, you have a much stronger um, and a disproportionately high valuation of that thing that you've created, right? Even if that thing is worse. So if someone had been like, oh, here's like an actual useful cup from Ikea, or here's your like handmade cup, which is probably going to fall apart and doesn't look that great and is a little bit wonky, I'd pay more for the one that I made because I made it, right? So that's the first cognitive bias. The second one is the endowment effect. So this is the finding that if um, people, or the finding that people are more likely to retain an object that they own than to acquire one that they don't own. So like in the research, they found that if people, and I actually think they used the cup for this, if people had a cup, they wanted more money to sell it than they would to buy it. So as an example, if I had this cup and someone was like, I'll give you a tenner for it, I'd be like, no, uh, I'd want at least £15 for this. Whereas if someone was like, do you want to buy this cup for a tenner? I'd be like, no, I'd only spend £5 on that, right? So when you own something, you have this kind of like aversion to losing it, which I guess links into another cognitive bias, which is loss aversion, where we feel the loss of something more than we feel the joy of gaining something. And then, um, or, or more to the point, if, if you think about this, like it's more painful to lose £10 than it is joyous or positive to find £10 because we have this like negativity bias. Bam, there's another one. That's like four that I've already mentioned. And then the final one is this like sunk cost fallacy, right? So when someone is reluctant to abandon a strategy or a course or an action because they have invested heavily in it already even though it's clear that like it's a sunk cost right like the abandonment would be more beneficial right so that might be like an example of this would be like you're halfway through a dinner and you're like this is actually really disgusting but I'm gonna eat it all because I paid for it when actually the the cost of that dinner is a sunk cost like you're not going to get the cost back but you could actually avoid, you know, wasting a ton of calories to eat the rest of it or just the sickness that you're going to feel from eating the rest of it and the lack of enjoyment from eating that meal. Or you go to the cinema and you're like halfway through, this film is horrendous, but I'm going to stay here because I've paid money to be here. Again, that's the sunk cost, right? You're not going to get that money back from the film anyway. So you probably should have just been like, well, I'm just going to leave. But like, no, not a lot of people do that, do they? They eat the full meal and they stay at the cinema. And they buy the, the freaking mug that they know they're probably not going to go back and get. But because I'd already put time, effort and money into creating the mug, I didn't want that to go to waste. So I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just get it killed and dried. Anyway, there's not really much to take home from this. I just thought it's interesting, like, uh, once you've read a lot about cognitive biases, like, just seeing them at play, and I was like, huh, this is very interesting. I wonder if they... They probably don't know what they're doing, but nonetheless, interesting. Right, okay, so that was a long and probably unnecessary story, which I hope everyone enjoyed. Now, getting on to the excellent Commit to Six questions, <clears throat> which I also... Oh, got very distracted by, oh my god, I've just realised I only read the last ones, didn't read the top ones. Okay, well, we'll start with these anyway. Right, Hannah, my question is, what advice would you give to help someone with stop negative self-talk? I think I might do a full podcast on this, 
and really think about it and really think about different practical strategies because this is a massive question. By far, the best thing that you can do, first of all, is to write it down. And I know sometimes that seems like weird and silly and like you can't bother to do it or you're just like, no, I just want the thoughts to stop. Well, the best way to get them to stop or kind of to show yourself how stupid a lot of them are is to write them down and then be like, is that helpful? Like the two questions I like to ask, is this thought helpful? Almost always no. And is this thought true? And again, almost always no or unprovable. So you can't, you know, like if you're saying oh, you look so awful in that dress, or like you couldn't possibly go to the gym wearing that. One, is it helpful? No. Two, is it true? No. So ignore it. Or think like, you know, if I was trying to talk to myself as someone who, if I'm telling myself, oh, I always fail on diets, right? Well, of course, with that kind of mentality, right? Because you're you're literally, it turns into a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. What would you say to someone that you wanted to win and now start treating yourself like that. And usually the first step of that is to write that down. And sometimes to compartmentalize it as someone else. All right, that's that's negative Hannah that's saying that, that's not me. And actually, yeah, she sometimes says this stuff, I'm just gonna ignore it. And usually the way you get over negative self-talk isn't that it will completely disappear. It might still pop up, but you get better at being like, huh, shut up negative Hannah and moving on with your day rather than like ruminating on it and letting it like um, impact your choices and decisions. So that'd be my, fir- my, my first tip. Um, Joanna, I asked a question about DOMS the other day and I wondered conversely, if you don't always get muscle soreness or feel the session afterwards, does that mean you haven't made any gains in that session or that you haven't worked hard enough? Thanks. No. And actually, if you have consistent DOMS, from doing the same kind of training stimulus, it's actually quite a bad sign. It normally means that you're not recovering well enough. So I think we spoke about this last time, but the biggest cause of DOMS is a new stimulus on the muscle. So if you change training program or you do a lot of um, eccentric loading, so muscle, the muscle being under tension while it's being stretched, that will cause more muscle damage and more delayed onset muscle soreness that is not a sign of whether your workout was good or bad. And actually, I rarely get DOMS now unless I have done something like really slow, eccentric uh, hamstring curls or stiff leg deadlifts or something like that, or something that I've not done for a long time, then I will. But aside from that, it's very unlikely that I will because I sleep enough, because my body's used to the exercise that it does, because I'm recovering well, because I'm feeling my body. So. No, it's not. It's actually not a particularly good sign if you're always getting DOMS. Um, but I get, I also get that it's sometimes it's kind of like a nice feeling of like, oh, I did something in the gym today. Um, but no, in answer to your question, no. Right, Ellie, I posted this one on the group, but one, I would be interested in your thoughts in full. My question is related to maintenance calories and whether they can increase over time. Your maintenance, in your maintenance podcast episode, it says, that maintenance calories aren't far off weight loss calories. So um, hopefully I put the context in here, but that depends on how big a deficit you're in. So for a lot of women, their diet and calories aren't like miles away from their maintenance calories. So you might diet on, say, 
1600 calories, but your maintenance might be like 1900 calories, right? And the 300 calories a day isn't a huge difference to your diet. Anyway, she says, however, I think I'd struggle on being as low as 1600 or thereabouts forever. Yeah. Um, is it unrealistic to think that I'd be able to maintain a smaller body yet increased calories? I'm five foot three and can't seem to get safely under 70 kilograms. Your maintenance needs are not 1600 calories at five foot three and 70 kilograms. Even at five foot three and like 60 kilograms, they would be more than that, assuming that you are also doing enough activity, right? So your maintenance calories are made up of your basal metabolic rate and the amount of activity you're doing and the amount of exercise you're doing. And then a couple of things that you can't really um, impact, like the thermic effect of food, which has a small impact as well. But what you can control there is your activity levels. So it would be like, okay, if you're doing 10,000 steps at 70 kilograms and five foot three, then your maintenance needs are going to be way more than 1600 calories. Now, if you were like, I want to increase my maintenance needs, really what you're saying is I want to increase the amount of calories that are required to stay at the body composition that I'm at. The best way to do that is to increase your activity levels. So some people will be like, oh, you could build more muscle. And they're not wrong. It's just the magnitude of effect is quite small and it's not an easy thing to do. So I would absolutely encourage you to build more muscle, but it's not like a particularly useful way of increasing your maintenance calories. It's going to take you years to build enough muscle to have like, you know, a hundred extra calories a day. So it's always important to think about that kind of like magnitude of effect there. Um, but excellent question. If I haven't explained that well enough or you want more context for yourself, then um, obviously just tag me in the group and I will delve into it for you. But don't worry, your maintenance calories are not 1600 unless you're like, oh, I only get 3000 steps a day, in which case they might be close to that. Um, but yeah, the best way to increase your maintenance needs is to increase your energy expenditure because essentially that is what your maintenance needs are. Um, Ruth, Ruth with one from her one-to-ones, is it true that lower body strength training is best slash fastest to lose fat? No. Um, it's probably true that you will burn more calories doing a lower body session than you will doing an upper body session because you've got bigger muscles there that are going to burn more calories when stimulated. And like, for example, a squat is going to burn more calories than a bench press because you're using bigger muscles and stimulating those muscles and activating those muscles. But in terms of what we know, the impact of exercise directly on fat loss is relatively small. So I don't think, I mean, it's not going to have a huge impact. Where you're going to lose fat is via your activity levels and also via your diet, obviously. Um, so no, I wouldn't worry about doing specific lower body strength training for fat loss. It's a great thing to do, just not directly for fat loss. Um, Nikki, each episode I listen to just makes more sense. The years I've wasted saying stuff like I've blown it, I'll start again on Monday because I thought that my day wasn't perfect. Oh, yes, Nikki. Also, if anyone is listening to this and hasn't listened to the last episode on imperfect action, please make sure that you listen to that after this. It's short, it's sharp, it's snappy, but it's very, very important. Um, Tracy, creatine, should I take it? And if so, how much and when? Yes, 
for the vast majority of people, there are a small percentage of people I probably wouldn't recommend it to. Like if you have kidney damage, for example. Um, but apart from that, yes, I would take creatine. And how much? Um, depends. Again, if you're perimenopausal, I might give you slightly higher dose. But generally, for most people, three to five grams every single day. It doesn't really matter when. There might be a slight benefit to taking it near your workouts. But to be honest, you're not really looking at any kind of acute effects of creatine, right? You want to saturate your your muscle stores over time. So it, it would take weeks to saturate your stores of creatine. So if you miss a day, again, it's not a big deal. Um, but you want to take three to five grams every day. And I would take it at the same time more to do with your behavior and the likelihood of you actually taking it consistently than there being any benefit to taking it at a certain time of day. Um, Kirsten asking about if you have one kidney, it's 100 grams of protein, still okay. I've asked you to ask your doctor just because it's always good to get the okay. Um, okay, Julia, listened, listened, thank, oh, sorry. On the EC Method episode 406, love the part on CrossFit making you bulky. Um, this is kind of what I asked last week and I found it interesting that Chloe said that the only time she felt bulky was when she had more fat than she was comfortable with. So that answered my query as to why I look quote unquote hench. So I feel I've been a big advocate of imperfect action for years now and I'm struggling to lose fat slash weight. Will be interesting to see if I can stick to my average calories that have been set for me, whether I finally see the physique emerging that I would love. Here's hoping. Yeah, I think there's two things to consider about imperfect action. The point isn't for it to be a reason not to stick to your targets, right? It's actually the opposite of that, right? It's it's there's a reason, it's like taking your excuse to give up away as opposed to it being a reason for you to be more lenient. So you also have to like approach the this as like, I'm going to own my actions and own my results. So yeah, imperfect action, you might be like, oh, well, I didn't hit my calories today, that's fine. But also own the fact that you're going to be in a smaller deficit and you're going to lose less body fat if you continue to do that. But the point isn't to, oh, I've gone over my calories, oh, I've ruined everything anyway, may as well massively overeat and then start again tomorrow. That is never going to get you anywhere. Like I can guarantee if you give up every time you can't be perfect, you will never get anywhere. But also if you use, oh, well, imperfect action as an excuse to not push yourself, not hit your targets, to overeat a little bit every day, then your results will show in that as well. So the whole point is you're using it as a way to take away your excuse to give up when you're trying to be perfect, not as a way to like be too lenient on yourself and then not get the results that you wanted, right? My other favorite saying, apart from imperfect action, don't get annoyed about the results that you didn't get from the work that you didn't do. Okay, um, Maja, what are your opinions and approaches to warm ups and cool downs? Uh, was this maybe already covered somewhere? I think we did, but that's quite all right. Um, I don't do a massive warm up. What I normally do is I walk on the treadmill for a bit. To be honest, I normally answer the tags in this group <laughs> and then I'll get going, but I'll do, um, I normally do some pull-ups and some push-ups and some squats as a bit of a warm up. So something kind of like body weight related like a little circuit. And then I get into the workout 
or I do um, the first couple of sets lighter. So say I was going to do three sets of 10 on the chest press. I'd do like maybe a set of like 10 to 15 on a lighter weight initially and then move up to my working sets. Um, but I think a lot of people waste a lot of time doing warm-ups. And then my cool-down is normally just me walking on the... Well, actually, normally just walking home from the gym. Um, if you're doing more explosive-type stuff, then I do a more rigorous warm-up, right? When I used to sprint or when I used to row or when I used to do performance sports or Olympic lifting, that kind of stuff, like I do a much more... Um, in-depth warm-up but for actually very controlled movements like lifting weights the injury risk is relatively low as long as you are physically warm and you've done a lighter weight with that same movement pattern and that's probably the best way to, to warm up anyway is to do the same movement pattern that you're about to do just without loading it okay Porsche right Porsche we have we have a bit of an issue here um, because you owe me an hour of my life, maybe an hour, okay, maybe it wasn't quite an hour, but like a lot of my life that I spent researching this question, I still don't know the answer to it. So the question is, could you explain what knots in muscle actually are? Also how to get knots out of muscle and how to prevent getting them in the first place? So when I read that, I was like, I wonder if knots in muscle are actually a thing or they're kind of like, you know, other, I find massage therapy, physio and that realm has actually quite a lot of um, misinformation in. Now, I am not an expert in that area, so it's harder for me to debunk that misinformation because I'm like by no means an expert, right? I am just a sceptical human who can read some level of science. And there's actually quite a lot of, well, actually, I, there isn't that much debate because it's not a very scientifically literate area. Um, but there is some debate as to whether muscle knots even exist. And then sometimes they just get termed trigger points. And now I didn't really think those two things were the same thing. But again, not my area. So I don't actually know. Um and then I got really deep into it and I was like, why do people start calling it muscle knots? Now it's trigger points. And is that the same thing? And then I don't know. And then does that actually make any difference? And then I found this really good article on it, which then did confuse me slightly more. Um, and he seemed to suggest there was absolutely no evidence that there were muscle knots. Now, what I found so interesting and such a well-written article was that... Um, he used to be a massage therapist and he starts it with like, you think he's going to be really pro, um, pro muscle knots is a weird way to say it, but like pro using trigger points and stuff. Cause he's like, I got amazing results with so many clients doing this. And then he's like, there was absolutely no evidence for it whatsoever. When I became a bit more skeptical about these things, I realized I might've been getting results despite doing this, not because of doing this or, that yeah, there really wasn't evidence for using things like trigger points or um, there being muscle knots. And he talks quite a lot about like the, I guess the biases that you fall for, because it's a nice theory, right? And there are a lot of things like this that in theory, you're like, yeah, oh, I've got a bit of a like knot in my muscle and they just need to rub it out. 
and then I'll be fine. And like, realistically, if you think about it, like, is there a knot in your muscle? No. And would it be fucking weird if like a load of like your muscle fibers had formed into some kind of like ball that was like stuck to get that like that is not happening. And that would be very worrying if it was like something very wrong would be going on. So that, like, yeah, anyway, um, I'm not going to lie. I haven't actually come to a conclusion myself yet. So we'll come back to this question when I do, but I had to move on with my day because um, sometimes I get stuck in those holes of things and then nothing gets done. So I'm sorry about that. I don't have an exact answer for this, but I am now of the... I'm going to be bold and say it. I think I'm probably of the the towards the the side of like I actually think quite a lot of that is a bit like pseudosciencey and I'm not sure I think muscle knots actually exist and if they do then please show me some evidence and please show me exactly what they are and what people mean when they say them I would love to know um so thanks for that Portia I mean you did make my brain think so yeah and then the other question that you have um which I'm gonna you I'm gonna collate a load of these and do a whole podcast on it so you've asked um could possibly be an entire episode in itself but debunking some of the most common diet hacks health fitness quote unquote myths could be good i had to listen to my boyfriend's nanny now one of my concerns about this question is to me nanny is like childminder like nan i'd understand that's that's like your grandma but nanny, that's concerning to me. Anyway, I'll move past that. I had to listen to my boyfriend's nanny spend a good 15 minutes talking about our bodies going into starvation mode and holding fat if we don't eat enough. Oh, God. Isn't it mad? Like, when you ask her, nanny, if that's your real name, um, why do you think people starve? Like, why do animals in the wild starve? Like, why do, you know, unfortunately, people starve? That would, that would interest me. Like, I always just wonder, like, I think it's because I'm so sceptical. <laughs> or I'm not even, yeah, sceptical, but in, like, in a questioning way. I think sceptical has negative connotations. What is the actual definition? Because I'm not sceptical as in, like, everything's negative. I'm just like... But why? How? Okay, the definition. Not easily convinced, having doubts or reservations. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, maybe that does. But it always seems a bit like a negative word. Anyway, um, what I'll do is I'll post in the group and anyone who has any myths that they'd like debunked, you can comment on that post. And... Um, I'll debunk them because I love doing that stuff. And no doubt I'll go into like a million holes and probably never come out of any of them and it'll be all your fault. So post debunk in group. You have no idea how much I'm enjoying this intake of commit six already. And we're only, oh, first check-ins are tomorrow. How very exciting. Okay. Um, hello, is there anything to help with, oh, wait. I've already answered that question, sorry. Sarah, I did a tough hit workout today. 
um, because sometimes it helps me more mentally than lifting heavy. My question is, is the deep burn that I'm feeling from a workout that is hit style or just higher reps with lower weight just as beneficial as a workout um, lifting heavier weights? Like, is the deep burn... Oh, wait. Like, if the deep burn feels the same either way, is that good? And are the muscles being challenged enough by hit, Or are there different burn feelings and I'm not recognising the difference? Good question. So you could probably argue this either way. So on one end of the spectrum here, what's been shown in, in terms of hypertrophy, so building muscle, is that as long as volume is matched and you are getting close to failure on your lift, it doesn't matter whether you do that within, say, eight reps or 15 reps, right? I think the max is about 30 reps. And that's only because then you start to get more kind of endurance adaptations um, rather than strength and hypertrophy adaptations. So how you create that muscle volume doesn't seem to matter very much. Now, I wouldn't class HIT as resistance training. So within the context of resistance training, so anywhere from like, I don't know, one to 30 reps, as long as you're getting the same volume, it seems to have very similar or the same hypertrophy effect. The reason that you have this hypertrophy rep range of like eight to 12-ish reps is because that that's the easiest way to get in enough volume. Um, sorry, that's the easiest way to hit a higher volume, right? So doing one rep maxes and trying to get high volume is freaking hard and probably gonna get you injured and then on the other end of the spectrum like doing like 30 reps to failure is also pretty hard and and not that enjoyable whereas like 8 to 12 reps is kind of the the sweet spot because you can lift pretty heavy um for a decent number of reps now when it comes to hit training i would say that's more towards like the endurance exercise side and it depends because hit training can be a myriad of things right it could be like sprints on the bike or it could be like burpees or it could be a circuit or it might be like if you've said here like just higher reps and lower weight that might be more like resistance training but it kind of depends on the exact exercise modality that we're talking about here and that will have different adaptations so different forms of exercise will have different adaptations and that's not to say that like one is necessarily better than the other and HIT has some amazing benefits to health especially increasing insulin sensitivity if you look at exercise on like a bit of a spectrum and on one side you've got endurance training and the other side you've got like maximal strength training HIT is kind of somewhere in the middle so you're getting some of the benefits of both but also probably not all of the benefits of either um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. What you will find it, when you're talking about this muscle burn is that that's probably going to be a lot of lactate buildup, which tends to happen with HIIT training because it's anaerobic um, and you tend not to have much recovery period. Whereas strength training is also anaerobic, but you're not, um, you're having much longer recovery periods. So you don't get the same level of lactate buildup as you do with HIIT style training. Um in regards to your question, like if you're kind of asking here, can I just do HIIT training? You're not going to build much muscle at all doing HIIT training in comparison to doing resistance training. And we do want you to build some muscle. So HIIT training is amazing. If you love it and you enjoy it, absolutely keep it in. But don't think that you can just swap it out and get the exact same benefits. 
So long story short, I would uh, do a little bit of both. Okay, James. Hey, not sure if Q&A or general, but what are the biggest and easiest to consume bang for buck protein sources when it comes to protein per calorie? Am I missing anything beyond shake, bar, eggs, sliced chicken, protein yogurt? Um, Nikki's had a good one here. So seafood, things like prawns, white fish is very low in um, calories per protein. Um, She's also put venison... Um, things like turkey are very lean. You've said chicken. Um, lean mints is still not that lean, but relatively lean. Um, I think those are the main ones. You've said protein, yeah, yogurt. Uh, yeah, those would be your your main really lean protein sources. Um, you may find that Google can come up with some others. Let me look, have a little look. Lean protein sorting. Eggs, I mean, lentils. Okay, Google's not done a great job here. I don't think lentils are a lean source of protein. Beef, salmon. Oh, come on. Nuts. Nuts is a lean source of protein. Okay, well, don't Google it because that's not been helpful. Pork. Oh, gosh. Tuna, though. Yeah. Uh, Cottage cheese. Yeah gone off the old cottage cheese hmm well that that wasn't particularly helpful um tofu I guess hmm I think if you're not a vegetarian tofu wouldn't be one of my primary sources of meat I'm sorry protein only it just doesn't really taste that great the only really good tofu that I've had is just been like pretty deep fried and I think what was tasting good was um the batter on the outside, you know, sadly. Okay, right. We've got a couple more, so we'll stop digressing. Okay, Ranju. Hello, my question is, I'm so sorry, I just can't get my head around fat loss deficit and how we up calories and don't put on weight. So right now I'm on 1600. I know when I'm done with fat loss, you will shortly start to increase my calorie intake. I get this, can't live on 1600 forever. But here is where my brain explodes. What happens to the extra energy I will consume? So the extra 400 calories. Why will they not turn into fat? And how does this make Commit to Six different to any other diet aside from not restricting food groups? Sorry for the questions. I'm just thinking ahead when it comes to normal service regime. Well, not normal as I was over consuming. Thanks for answering my silly question. It's not silly at all. But let me explain. So at the moment you're in fat loss, so you're on 1600 calories. So let's just say for argument's sake, your maintenance needs, so the amount of energy that you're expending per day is 2000 calories. That means you're in a 400 calorie deficit as you've kind of put here. So where does that extra 400 calories go? Well, at the moment, every day you're finishing in about a 400 calorie deficit. That's why you're losing fat because fat is the body's stored energy, right? So when you're in a deficit, that energy has to come from somewhere. So we're using your body's stores of energy to fuel your life, your movement, whatever you're doing, however much energy you're expending during the day. And at the moment, we're assuming it's about 2000 calories, right? So you're expending 2000 calories, you're only eating 1600 calories. Thus, we need to find 400 calories. So that's coming from your fat stores, primarily, 
I'm simplifying things a little bit, but that's coming from your own energy source. And that means that you're losing fat. Now, when we bring your calories up to 2000, you're going to be expending 2000 and taking in 2000. So there is no energy deficit or surplus. So you will maintain your weight. Again, oversimplification, because these numbers are never exact and they're always fluctuating a little bit. But that's what we would want to be happening on average. Now, you still might have some days where you eat a little bit more, some days where you eat a little bit less. But that's what we're looking for as an average. Hopefully that makes sense, but please do, if you're still like, oh, I just can't get my head around that, um, just message me in the group and I will explain it again. But hopefully now you're like, oh, okay, I've got you. Right now I'm using my stored energy and then I won't need to because I'll be at maintenance. And then if you eat 2,500 calories, then you're going to have this 500 calorie surplus and that surplus of energy will have to go somewhere so that's going to be stored primarily as body fat. Um, okay, right, Nicola. How, my question is, how you make the three to one method work for you? Hints, tips on breakfast and lunch choices. So far, I've not strayed from fruit and yogurt for breakfast and an omelette full of veg and turkey bacon for lunch. Just would love some ideas. I tend to have a big salad at dinner, so ideally not that. Also, getting four to five portions of fruit and veg before dinner is a winner. Um, okay, so I'll answer this bit first because then it goes on. I'm not a very good person to ask around this because I really enjoy eating the same things consistently. So for breakfast, I tend to have, what do I have at the moment? Um, a big bowl of fruit, usually some mango. And what I was having was a protein bar. But now I'm trying to minimise processed foods. So now what I'm having is some Greek yoghurt. Um, yeah, so that's what I have for breakfast every day. And I realistically, I probably will for like, maybe I don't have that on the weekend. I often go out for brunch and things on the weekend. So I don't really follow like the three to one principle on the weekend. Um, but that's what I'll be having probably until I get bored of it or find something better to have and then I don't know I might go back to poached eggs or I might go back to liking cottage cheese who knows but I tend to eat the same thing for the structured meals for like quite a period of time and that works quite well for me and I don't really need like excitement from my diet I get it from other places um but what I will suggest is BBC Good Foods have loads of really good ideas um and you could do things like high protein pancakes or eggs for breakfast although you're having omelette for lunch so I'd probably like mix up the sauces a little bit and then unfortunately what I do have for my lunch is a big salad but what I did go through a big phase of having was and this was amazing like a bed of crispy kale so like grill the kale a bit of salt on the kale Oh, a bit of like um, spray light, whatever you call it, one cow spray, a bit of salt on it, put it in the grill, then poached eggs on top of that. Oh, and this is the bit where people are like, oh, I'm not following anymore. But I also quite like some um, iceberg lettuce on that. I know, weird, right? But pff, it was very, very good. And obviously, clearly now I'm saying that out loud, I like, I like the crunch. So I had that with poached eggs for lunch for yeah quite a while but I go through phases of things I'm trying to think what else I had 
Um, I think I'm going to bring back the oily fish. Um, looking back, I did eat, like, now thinking, like, quite a worrying amount of oily fish for a while, where I had, like, smoked mackerel, I think, every, every day at lunch. Oh, no, maybe I mixed it up with, like, smoked mackerel one day, tuna the next day. But I've decided that, um... I'm going to bring fish back into my diet in a big way. Like I was minimising all meat. And now I'm like, mm, I really just don't think that's optimal for health at all. Now, if you're being a vegetarian for other reasons, fine. But if you think it's best health, like I just think fish in your diet is mega important, especially for brain function. And that's probably one of my biggest things. Now I'm like, I just want to feel my best. I don't really, you know, like... I'm happy with my body composition. I don't have massive physique goals. I don't have massive performance goals. I just want to feel my best. So how can I create a diet that's going to make me feel my best? And that's kind of my focus now. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that you're enjoying the three to one method. I'm glad that that's working well for you. Um, and then you've put here five, one, three was brilliant and really made me think, oh, maybe that's the episode. Uh, no idea what I said on that, but I'm glad it was brilliant and really made me think about my old carby lunches and the 3pm dip. I've noticed a big reduction in them since shifting to lower carb. I think I've convinced myself I needed them. Yeah, I really don't enjoy eating car like carby, carby carbs, <laughs> starchy carbs during the day. Um, there's nothing wrong with them. And I think this is a really important mindset to take. Whenever I talk about this, people are like, well, I like having a sandwich for lunch. And I's like, amazing like you enjoy that or they're like but I train at lunchtime I'm like there, there is no like rule here or secret here do what makes you feel best and I, I much prefer not having starchy carbs in the day I think it just makes me a bit tired and also I kind of like saving them and then looking forward to them in the evening when I can slow down a bit and enjoy a meal and yeah so I, I usually don't have them in the day and then I'll have them in the evening. Okay, I hope that was somewhat useful. Um, and then you've said, I just want to say thank you. This knowledge shift has been a real eye-opener and just what I needed. Oh, you're very welcome. And if you have any other questions, um, let me know. I'm just wondering if I've given enough for that answer. Um, how I make three to one. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about the three to one diet is really to keep a lot of things simple. So again, one of the reasons I eat this way um, is to reduce decision fatigue. So it kind of uh, negates that if you're like, oh, I'm going to have a different breakfast every single day. If you, I mean, I'd maybe have, if you're someone who likes variety, maybe have a couple on rotation. But like the variety I get, and by the way, variety is really important in your diet, but I'll just have different fruit or like different things in my salad. So the structure kind of stays the same. So there's no like real cognitive load of like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to have for breakfast. It's like it, that stuff just gets done and I get on with my day and living my life and doing all the important things that I like doing. Um, and then I, ha then I have a bit more flexibility in the evening and that tends to work really well for me. But, but remember that part of the reason that I'm doing that is because I want to be really productive, really focused on work, on delivering to clients, on creating good content, on building successful businesses on helping coaches like that's where I want my focus to be so I'm not overthinking the diet side 
And I think that's one of the big issues that people have with if it fits your macros is there's just so much decision fatigue around different choices that they're making during the day. Um, around food. <laughs> Sorry for the massive delay there. Uh, okay, right, last one. I'm sure everyone's very happy to hear. Uh, okay, is it better to take creatine in powder form versus tablet form? I take the tablet form, which is a rookie error because they're so bulky. Um, yes. Which has things in the ingredients like bulking and anti-caking agents. Looking at the label, it's things like magnesium, can't say that word, silicon dioxide and something something sucralose I think I read somewhere that these are quote-unquote bad for health does that sound right or like nonsense to you but if a specific question sorry a bit of a specific question um but what are your thoughts so at the start of this question I'd be like doesn't matter just take it whichever way you like but I actually think that's quite a good rationale for not taking it in the tablet form now do I think that in such a small dose these like um um, anti-caking agents or bulking agents or whatever are going to make a big difference no but given the choice would I prefer not to have them in my body like yeah so I think like in high doses they're probably not very good for you in very small doses it's probably not going to make any difference but like if you can avoid them and actually it's easier to take as powder then um, I take it as powder Okay, thank you so much for listening to this. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much, Commit Six Group, for your amazing questions. And I don't think I have much else to say. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode and you know anyone who might enjoy it, please do send them the episode and please do share it on social media if you have enjoyed yourself. And if you haven't rated the podcast, it would make my day. That's all. Have a lovely day. Bye.